Our lesson for this third Sunday of Advent is Isaiah chapter 35. Pay close attention once again. This is God's holy word. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of Yahweh, the excellency of our God. Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall be, become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast go upon it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And now we depend upon your Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. Deliver us, we pray, from every distraction. Deliver us from every error. Uh, direct our thoughts and our hearts to what you have said. Uh, liberate, loosen my tongue, I pray, as I attempt to articulate these things to your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You just wait till your father gets home. I think that's a line that most of us heard at least once as a child, if not multiple times, if not nearly every day in my house. I think I heard that. You just wait till your father gets home. And what that means is your mom is completely done with your nonsense. She's over it. And she's sending your case directly up to the Supreme Court. Uh, there's no more appeals. You have to deal with dad. She's at the end of your rope, um, at the end of her rope with your laziness, with your sass, with you fighting with your siblings. So when dad walks through that door, the first thing she's going to do is tell him what you just did and he will sort you out. You better believe it, Buster. When dad gets home, everybody's getting a spanking. You, you watch it. Uh, that's not something she says to make you hopeful or giddy at the prospect of your dad pulling up in the driveway. That is to sober you up. Uh, how did the rest of that afternoon go after mom said that? Did a black cloud of dread hang over you as you waited for your executioner to arrive? Would you do everything that you could to be on your best behavior for the remainder of the day? You go out of your way to be as pleasant and as obedient and as respectful as possible? Dear mother, may I unload the dishwasher for you? May, may I pick up all the dirty clothes in the house and put them in the, in the hamper? You go out of your way to be a perfect angel until dad arrives. Maybe mom will forget. Maybe I'll soften her up. But I really don't know how it's going to go when dad gets home. I don't know what mood dad is going to be in when he, when he arrives, and I don't know what's in store for me. So things are uneasy. Things are worrisome waiting for the judgment. 
Years later, you have that same restlessness and you have that same fear of judgment when you start driving and you get your first speeding ticket as you wait uh, the days up until your court date. You have this gnawing anxiety that, that just grinds away in your mind. Every time you have an idle moment, you think back to this thing and you keep going back over the same thoughts. Maybe the judge will let me off. Maybe I'll only have to pay a fine. Maybe, maybe he'll suspend my license. Maybe he could put me under the jail. Maybe he'll throw the book at me. Your mind develops all of these worst case scenarios. And the same thing happens when you have a looming performance review at work. I've got to meet with my boss. Am I going to get a raise or am I going to get fired? Uh, you buckle down on performance as the day of judgment is coming. And, and as you look forward to these reckonings, you wonder, am I prepared? How am I going to fare when the judgment arrives, when the judgment comes? During the season of Advent every year, during the season of Advent, we sing and we pray, and we read a lot about the coming of the Lord. Advent hymnody, it's my favorite time of the year. All these hymns that we've been singing the last few weeks, they're my favorites. We only get to do them once a year, but I, I, I love them because they're about all the ways that the Lord draws near to us and how, the, how he draws near, near, draws near to the world in judgment, to set things right, to stir things up, to heal and deliver and to redeem and to judge. So there's this particular emphasis in our hymns, in our scripture readings, in our prayers, this emphasis on the future day of judgment when there will be an eternal separation of the righteous and the unrighteous. Those who have trusted Christ will enter their eternal blessing. Those who have rejected the Lord Jesus and have hated him will enter their eternal judgment in hell. We think forward during the season of the year. We think forward to that judgment and the time when death itself will finally be destroyed. When everything and everyone is sorted out once for all at God's throne in judgment. But are those events frightful to us or do we look forward to these things with hope? Do we welcome these things or do we dread these things? Is Advent a fearful season or a hopeful season. Is waiting on the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, is waiting on that kind of like waiting for dad to get home, waiting for a court date, waiting for a performance review at work? Is it something that we can sing about with joy and look forward to and rejoice in? Is it a good thing or not? Well, it all depends on where your head is and where your heart is. It depends on your relationship to the judge of all the earth. If you are not in fellowship with God, his drawing near to the earth in judgment ought to terrify you. I'm not going to say anything to ease that or to put you uh, at rest. If you are not in fellowship with God, if you're not in communion with him, it ought to terrify you, the prospect of God's drawing near in judgment. But if you're in communion with him, if you trust in his son, Jesus, if you're united to him through baptism in the church, in the body and bride of Christ, then his coming near is joyful. Even, we might say, joyfully dreadful or dreadfully joyful because we know, we acknowledge that there are things in us that still need to get sorted out. He is drawing near and he is coming to correct and I need correction. I am miserable until I'm corrected and I'm fixed. And the only way I get what I need is for the Lord to come and set me straight. 
So that's the theme, that's the tone of our lesson from Isaiah today, in Isaiah chapter 35. We get another set of promises like we read last week in Isaiah 11. We, we read about the redemption and the renewal of the whole earth, how the creation is blessed and restored by the reign of Messiah. And now Isaiah picking up this theme again, he talks about how the wilderness and the wasteland will blossom with beauty, how the mountains bear witness to the excellency of God, how the deserts will burst forth with water, how grass will replace the dry desert sand. And in this text as well, as we saw last week, dangerous animals are tame. And the eyes of the blind are open. The ears of the deaf are unstopped. The lame man leaps like a deer and the tongue of the mute is loosened. This is all a picture of the victory of the gospel and its effects on all of life as Jesus the Messiah reigns. All of human culture and all of creation responds to the victorious announcement of the gospel in the advancement of God's kingdom in Jesus. It all begins to break loose in Jesus. That's why, as John read um, the gospel reading this morning from Matthew chapter 11, we studied that several weeks ago. John sends his disciples to Jesus and says... Are you the one that we're looking for? Are you the coming one? Or is there another? And Jesus points back to Isaiah. He says, tell John this. Tell him that the blind see, that the lame walk, that the lepers are cleansed, that the deaf hear, that the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And Jesus is just quoting Isaiah. Isaiah said these things would happen when Messiah came, and John the Baptist would put it all together and say, oh yes, he is the coming one. But the point is, is that the coming of Messiah results in broken things being put right and wounded things being healed and sickness and, and all manner of uncleanness being restored and everything uh, coming to glory and rest in the, in the King uh, uh, Jesus, in, in, in the reign of King Jesus. Right in the middle of these blessings, though, that Isaiah lists in chapter 35, Right in the middle of all these blessings comes this strong exhortation. He says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Now, why would we fear in the face of all this blessing that's breaking forth? Why do our hands tremble? Why would our knees shake? Why would our hearts fail? Well, it's because of how this redemption, this salvation, this deliverance comes. It comes, the, the vehicle of this salvation is God's drawing near in judgment. And so Isaiah says, behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. So in order for all these good things to come to pass, in order for him to save us, remember save and salvation always refers to the victory of God, uh, we spent a lot of time on that last week. In order for him to save us, to have victory over those things that uh, hurt us and hurt our fellowship with each other and with God, in order for this to happen, God must first draw near in judgment. Before things can be set right, everything that is out of order must be eliminated. Every threat to peace and righteousness and justice must be destroyed. Now, God has certainly ordained human judgment and human authority to 
uh, mitigate sin and wickedness. He has given us uh, the, the authority to set things right in our time, in our context by his Holy Spirit. He's given us self-discipline, so we correct ourselves. There's no need for church discipline or courts or uh, family discipline, the use of the rod, if they're self-discipline. If they're self-discipline, uh, then we stop there. And by his spirit, we can have self-control. But when self-discipline breaks down, we have family discipline through the faithful use of the rod. The church has the authority and discipline of the keys of the kingdom. The state has the sword to keep order, to protect the innocent, and to punish the guilty. God has ordained human authority, but our judgments are limited. Our rule and our ability to mitigate evil is all finite. Even our best judgments are still flawed. We don't see everything. We don't hear everything. We don't know hearts and minds. We can be deceived. And so ultimately, everything must be set right by God's perfectly just judgment. We need his judgment to heal and restore and change the world. The, so this drawing near in judgment is what the prophets of, often refer to as the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's visitation. It's what the season of Advent is named after. The Advent is just the Latin word for drawing near. And God's coming and his visitation of making things right um, is, is what the prophets all speak of. And this Coming in judgment is the prerequisite for all of these blessings that Isaiah describes. When we study the scriptures all the way through, we find that there's not just one day of the Lord, but many days of the Lord throughout uh, history. Not just one final day of judgment, but there are many smaller days of the Lord. In the garden, after Adam and Eve uh, had eaten the fruit, there is an advent. There is a day of the Lord. God uh, comes to visit Adam. Adam has a, has a mess on his hands of his own creation. And so God visits Adam with judgment and mercy and sets everything right. And while it was certainly difficult and it was painful for Adam, God is merciful. And they leave the garden in hope that there is a way to be restored to fellowship with God. There are many other days of the Lord that we could think of. God visited the earth in judgment, in the flood. The plagues on Egypt were a day of the Lord. They were an advent of the Lord. God drew near to his people at Sinai. He tabernacled with them in the wilderness. And then when they fall away at various times and seasons, God warns them that he is returning in judgment. He is coming in vengeance to punish the guilty, to defend the innocent, to set things right God draws near to us in the incarnation by Emmanuel, who is God with us. He humbles himself. He takes on the form of a servant. He lives for us. He dies for us. And he lives for us again. All of these, everything, are, they're all days of the Lord. And you could probably think of others and name other examples. That the day of the Lord is God's drawing near in a special way to defend and deliver his people and punish the wicked. And every one of these days of the Lord point forward to a great and final judgment that is yet to come, a judgment of the whole earth. Because of the prophecies that we study and the, and the texts that we focus on during the season of Advent, we spend a lot of time on the questions surrounding the subject of eschatology. I defined eschatology last week. It's just the study of last 
things, all the readings and the hymns and everything has something to do with prophecy, which is to say we have to do with God's promises for the future. And it's important in our reading about what the Bible has to say about last things that even as I often stress the things that have already been fulfilled, we don't forget and we don't lose sight of the fact that there are events yet to come. We, we have to carefully read these texts and work to understand which, which promises have already been fulfilled and which ones still have a future fulfillment. For example, we point to Matthew 24 when Jesus talks about the tribulation and the abomination of desolation and the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light. His apostles asked him, he said, when are these things going to be? When is all this going to take place? And he tells them in verse 34 of Matthew 24, he says, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So when we read that, we take Jesus at his word. He was not misleading his disciples when he told them that the, these things he just described are going to happen in that generation. And when we reflect on that, we say, oh yeah, these things do match up with the events of the first century in Jerusalem. In Revelation, the book opens and it ends with that repeated timestamp. These things are shortly to take place. These things are shortly to take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Over and over, the day of the Lord is imminent in the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of the old world. And the first 19 chapters of Revelation are events they describe events in the near future of John's audience. We don't insert thousands of years into the prophetic timeline until the text does, which it does in Revelation 20, right at the beginning of chapter 20. Uh, then, we, then we have years, we have space. But for the most part, Revelation is a book of things that has been fulfilled. It isn't a book of things yet to be fulfilled. It's a book about the upheaval of Israel at the end of the first century, and it's given in symbolic language, things that the angel took and signified to John, we read. However, there are still those last three chapters. Not all of God's promises in the scriptures have been entirely fulfilled. The last three chapters of Revelation tell us about the return of Jesus and judgment the final defeat of death and Satan, the resurrection of the living and the dead, the final consummation of the new heavens and the new earth in the eternal city, the eternal city of Jerusalem. So there are promises yet unfulfilled that God has communicated through his servants in 1 Corinthians 15, which you're all familiar with. We read that typically around Easter when our focus and our thoughts are on resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. But Paul writes after the resurrection of Jesus and tells us to look forward to our own resurrection. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen for the things that we're still looking forward to. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a precursor. It's the first fruits for our own bodily resurrection, which has not happened yet. And then he continues, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, 
for he has put all things under his feet. There is a whole list of things there that haven't happened yet. The resurrection of the dead, all enemies being subdued and put under the feet of Jesus. The death of death is yet to come. In 2 Corinthians, he writes that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. You can put that in the category of personal eschatology. We all have a future appointment at the judgment seat of Christ. We all have that appointment to keep, and we most certainly will keep that. The point of this is that even as we categorize, there are things that um, we're, we're, uh, that the promises that God has kept, there are yet to be things in our future that we are still looking forward to a future great day of the Lord. The Westminster Confession in, in chapter 33 articulates what lies in our future. I love the economy of language here and how clearly it, it puts this. Here's the Westminster Confession on the future day of judgment. God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. So all these things are yet in our future. And we confess the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed without hesitation, without qualification. We don't have to cross our fingers behind our back and think, well, maybe all of this is done. No, it's not. We still say in the Christian faith that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, uh, God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And then we continue, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. What are we confessing there and what are we saying and what are we looking forward to? We look forward to the day when all of creation will be set free from its bondage to sin and death and corruption and that everything, all of creation and we included will be truly saved and delivered. What, what's left? Uh, all of this, all of these promises of deliverance echo in every one of these readings we've heard today from Isaiah, from Paul and Matthew and James. The whole creation is groaning and waiting to be delivered. All of these things yet to be fulfilled and we patiently wait on the Lord to keep his promises, however long it takes for these things to come to pass. Well, the question for us right now then is, what is our attitude? What is our, what is our behavior as we wait on the Lord? Once again, is the day of the Lord's judgment, is it a terrifying thing? Well, it depends. The Bible speaks of both comfort and dread. Let's first look at the justification for comfort in the day of the Lord. How can you take comfort in God's drawing near in judgment in the day of the Lord? Imagine that you're living in a land, a realm, a kingdom that has been overrun by crazy, despotic, murderous warlords. So, so your, your land is overrun by barbarians. Just imagine. It's easy if you try to imagine uh, what that's like. These crazy warlords, they take whatever they want. They make arbitrary judgments. People are starving. People are suffering everywhere. The true benevolent king of your land 
was exiled. When the barbarians invaded, um, he was able to make it out alive. And now he's abroad making alliances, uh, making these allegiances, gathering an army, and, uh, and, and getting this well-armed, effective army together. And you hear that they're on their way back uh, to reclaim the throne and the crown. Well, when you hear that, when you hear that he's coming back, you figure out real quick which side you are on. Does the king's return come with violence? Does it come with judgment? Does it come with disruption? Does it come with conflict? Absolutely. So what, how do you sort through this? Even as you're hopeful for his return, you know that it's not going to be peaceful. The, the powers of evil are going to resist him. Well, Isaiah, that's why Isaiah says this. He says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God, your king will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. His coming is going to be violent. His coming is with vengeance against the powers of darkness. And you cheer him on. You rejoice to see him retake the city, to destroy the evildoers, to vanquish the tyrants, and to destroy every enemy of peace and prosperity. The prospect of his coming in judgment is a great comfort so long as you are in fellowship with the king. So what do we do while we wait for the king? What do we do while we wait for his return? Because it can seem like it's taking forever for God's justice to be realized on the earth. It is painfully slow, it, it seems. Well, James addresses that. John also read uh, the epistle reading from James this morning, where James says, be patient. He says, be patient like the farmer waiting for the fruit of the earth, waiting for the early and latter rain. You are like the farmer who plows the field, who plants the seed, who fertilizes, who weeds the patch, who chases off the pests. You, you, you do everything within your power and within your control to do, but you don't control the sunshine and you don't control the early and latter rain, and you're not in charge of the results of the harvest, whether you get tenfold or twentyfold or a hundredfold of, of on the harvest. What are you in charge? You're not in charge of any of those things. You're in charge of the planting. So you plant and you wait. You faithfully plant. And James says, while you wait, you do not grumble. James says that. He says, do not grumble. Don't despair while you wait. While you wait for God's perfect justice to be done in your life and in the world, don't grumble. Don't give up. Don't mail it in. Life is frustratingly complex to us. There are problems that we live with that we cannot fix. There are things that get broken that cannot be put back the way they were before they were broken. And if you resist that because you have this kind of can-do, you know, type A personality, says, what? Give it to me. I can fix it. Watch this. I can fix all this. Let me, let me give you something you're not going to fix ever. You're dying. Your body is on a march toward the grave. You can delay that. You can slow it down, maybe, but you are headed for, you have an appointment with uh, the undertaker. You're uh, powerless to stop or resolve your own inevitable death. We are all slowly deteriorating, steadily. And if you're 40, you'll never be 10 again. 
You will never have the body of a 20-year-old again. The problem of aging and death is unfixable by us. A bigger problem, bigger than even our inevitable death, is the fact that we have a sin problem. We have a sin nature, which is not erased and is not resolved until we leave these bodies. Radiating out from these two problems, our sin and our death, radiating out from this are a million fractals of unfixable problems. Sin and death break things that can't ever be put back the same way. I sin against you. I can't go back and not sin. I can't, I can't go back and undo that. I don't get a do-over. You, you can forgive me, but we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. You can't put the apple back on the tree. We're both changed by this. Now, by God's grace, often if I sin and you forgive me and we're restored, sometimes it can be better than it was before, but you don't, you don't get do-overs. And things have happened to you in your life, bad things, sad things, hurtful things, offensive things. Things have happened to you that have changed your life forever. And you have done things. You have contributed to your own suffering and you can't go back and undo them. And nobody can undo them for you. You can't fix other people. You can't make them repent and obey because God has not given us the ability or the power or the authority to fix every broken thing. He has required of us in the middle of broken things, he's required us to be faithful and to trust and obey. He requires that we refrain from sinning. Stop contributing to the problem. Stop contributing to the misery in the middle of all kinds of difficulty and in the middle of dealing with the sins of other people and dealing with the lingering effects of our own sin. Trust, obey, stop sinning, confess, repent, and get right with the Lord. We can do that. That is within our power by the power of God's Holy Spirit, obedience, repentance, and trust. Those things are possible. But there are problems in your life just because of the fallen creation and these deteriorating bodies and our sin nature. There are problems in our lives that are not going to be solved until we stand before the throne of Jesus. That's not a cause for despair. That's a cause for hopeful, faithful, patient rejoicing because we have this deep longing for God's perfect judgment because before his throne and in his time, everything does get set right. The broken things that we cannot fix will get fixed. And that's why Isaiah says this in verse five. He says, then the eyes of the blind shall be open. This is coming, the, the coming and the work of Messiah. The eyes of the blind shall be open. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb will sing. The waters birth forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. Everything is restored and redeemed and glorified in the day of the Lord, in his perfect judgment and in his time. We also take comfort that in God's perfect judgment, everything gets um, punished that needs punished and everything gets vindicated that needs vindicating. We take comfort in that people do get away with things in this life. In this life, the wicked do not always get what's coming to them. Sometimes the innocent get punished in ways they don't deserve while the wicked go free. 
And while we're overwhelmed by the absurdity and the messiness of it all, we retreat back to this hope, this hope that everything gets sorted out perfectly before the throne of the perfect holy judge of all the earth. Everyone must give an account. Every sin is punished. Every good thing is vindicated. So we hope in the day of the Lord. We don't sinfully take things into our own own hands and try to force outcomes. Like there's so many examples of this in scripture where Adam uh, was supposed to wait for the uh, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And yet he seized it ahead of time. Abraham and Sarah get tired of waiting on God's promises. And they foolishly thought Hagar would provide them the son of the promise. Israel impatiently complains and they want a king before God has raised up his anointed king. And that becomes a disaster for them. The Bible is full of examples of what happens when men and societies force outcomes, seize forbidden fruit, end up ruling like the unrighteous, acting out in anger and frustration instead of faithfully, obediently, patiently waiting on the Lord as James exhorts us in his epistle. So we wait, we wait in hope and in comfort and obedience and in trust because God's judgments are good to those who are faithful to him. And at the same time, the day of the Lord and, and, and his judgment is dreadful to those who are acting just like those whom God is saying will be judged. If, uh, if, if on the one hand, you're waiting for the king to come liberate you, think back to my example. If you're there and you hear the king is coming and you're saying, well, I really hope he comes back and set things straight, but I'm wearing the uniform of the usurping warlords and I've gotten in on the action of oppressing and stealing and I've been running amok through the city while the king is away, you're not gonna be spared when the king comes back to town. You have to repent. You have to take off the uniform and make things right. There are several places in the Bible that give us these lists of attitudes and these lists of behaviors and lists of habits that show us the uniform of darkness, that show us the kinds of things that get judged on the day of the Lord. I know you're familiar with these lists, but I want to briefly recall them. At the end of uh, Romans chapter 1, we get this list of wicked attitudes and behaviors that God has given them over a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. These who pra- those who practice these things and those who approve of them are worthy of death, Paul says. In Revelation 21, we read that the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Uh, Once again, in Galatians, Paul lists the works of the flesh, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When we read those lists 
and we hear those, we kind of nod along and say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, they're going to get it. The murderers, huh? The sorcerers, come on. The idolaters, yes. The sexually immoral, uh-huh, they're going to get it. The unbelieving, yeah. Yeah, those people, all of them are under judgment. But you keep reading. The proud, the untrustworthy, the unloving, the unforgiving, the unmerciful, disobedient to parents. Does that belong in that list? Yes, it belongs in that list. The wrathful, those who can't control their anger, have outbursts of anger. The selfish, all liars. Oh, God hates that too. God hates all of these things. All of these things are under God's judgment. All of these things are the objects of his wrath on the day of the Lord. Not to minimize the idolaters and the sorcerers and the sexually perverted. All of those and the disobedient to parents and the wrathful and the selfish and the unmerciful. They're all together. If God's judgment is a freight train that's barreling down the tracks, these things are on the tracks. These things are getting run over. This is what he is coming to set right. And you don't want to be found in your sins on the day of the Lord. So if you're identified, if that's your identity, if you say, yep, I'm a wrathful person. Yes, I am an unmerciful, unloving, unforgiving person. That's who I am. That's who I am. If that's who you are, there is every reason to dread the day of the Lord. And once again, I'm not going to salve your conscience or tell you not to worry. You better worry. You better be afraid. You better, you better dread the day of the Lord. And yet there's still time. While you still draw breath, there is time. Allow your dread and fear to lead you to repentance and obedience. Don't hide from the day of the Lord's coming. Adam tried that. Adam and Eve tried to sew these pitiful fig leaves, these aprons to hide their shame. Don't think you're going to hide. Don't think you're going to get away. Don't think you're going to reason your way out. You're not a good enough lawyer to argue your way out of this. Don't, don't think you're going to argue your way out of a verdict before the throne of God's judgment. Don't think you're going to deflect your guilt by pointing to somebody else who you think did something worse. What about-ism doesn't work before the throne of God? You don't say, well, well, these guys over here are doing, no, 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 I'll deal with them. They have their day. This is your day. This is your time. You're not, you're, you're not going to justify or excuse your rebellion. All that's left for you. This is all that's left. Here's your only defense. Here it is. This is it. When your sin is realized and exposed, all you can do is confess it. All you can do is own it and turn from it. Stop trying to cover yourself with your own sorry excuse for righteousness and be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The good news, the good news is that all of these sins and all of these lists that I just read and the other places in the Bible, all these sins are sins for which Jesus took the penalty of death in your place. He took the punishment that is yours to bear. Jesus died for your sins to cover your sins. And we, we say that, we say that so casually. Yeah, Jesus died for my sins. What are you talking about? You talking about abstract sins? What are, you, what are you talking about? No, that means he died for your lust. He suffered for your disobedience. He suffered and died for your dishonor toward your parents. He died for your outbursts of anger. He died for your selfishness. 
and your little white lies. He died for your ingratitude, he died for your pride, and he died for your arrogance. These are all sins that are deserving of death, every single one of them. And Jesus took the penalty for them for you. Jesus went through the bitter judgment already so you don't have to if you are in him. You don't receive the judgment, you receive the blessing of being in him. The day of judgment, the day of the Lord is coming. And again, I'm not talking about abstractions. I'm talking about the nearness of God's judgment on a society that has completely rejected him. If we do not repent and have a major turning away from our sins in this nation, our judgment is going to make Sodom and Gomorrah look tame. We've only gotten a taste of it. We've just gotten a little appetizer of God's judgment. There is going to be hardship and suffering in the day of the Lord. And beyond that, the great day of the Lord sits out there in the future for the whole world. Every single one of us is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Is the day of the Lord dreadful or joyful? Yes, it is. It is both. James says the judge is standing at the door. So what do you do? What do you do when dad is pulling up the driveway? What do you do when the day is near? What do you do when the day of the Lord is near? Straighten up, confess your sins, repent, turn away from your rebellion, take off the uniform of darkness and put on the uniform of light. Rejoice and rest and celebrate his coming. Welcome his coming. Prepare the way of the king with worship and trust and obedience. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for the coming of our king and we thank you that in him, all the broken things will be made right. We despair and we are powerless in the midst of our futility and yet you restore our souls in hope and delight and joy. So do that for us as we uh, rejoice and rest in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.